0: Welcome to the Gateway Research Organization podcast, research and extension led by farmers for farmers. Come grow with us.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Amber Kenyon with Gateway Research Organization. We are a nonprofit agricultural research association based out of Westlock, Alberta. We're really excited to be running these networking nights with Steve Kenyon from Greener Pastures Ranching for the third season. And just to let everybody know, this is the last month we're going to be doing these. So as we go into spring and into the grazing season, we take a break for the summer. Uh, So just to let you know, after March, we're done. If you have made it onto one of these in the past or have listened to the podcast, you're going to know it's a very free-flowing conversation and it's a lot of fun. So, tonight, we're really excited to have Joseph joining us as our guest. Uh, Steve and I had the opportunity to visit to visit Avalee Ranch this past summer, and it's absolutely stunning. Um, I got to fly the drone up there, and man, to get shots from above like that. It was just incredible. So one of the things that I love about the work that they're doing is that even in an extreme environment like the Rocky Mountains in British Columbia, their family is showing that rotational grazing works. So I'm going to let Joseph do a more thorough introduction on his experiences in the top and on his experiences and the topic in just a little bit here. But first, Steve, do you want to introduce yourself and your thoughts on tonight's topic?
0: Yeah, thanks, Amber. Uh, Yeah, Steve Kenyon here with Greener Pressures Ranching. Um, We were pretty excited to go out and and see Joseph's place here this summer. Uh, The reason we went out there originally, um, I'm working with the Canadian Forage and Grassland Association, and we're trying to promote uh, advanced grazing systems all across Canada. So in this, I mean, I've been traveling across Canada, going to different locations, and I constantly get the the, the saying, "Well, you can't do that here, right?" Well, you know, our our places our our places different. Our places, you know, we we've got more challenges than other places. And what I've found going across Canada, and you know, even in the in the U.S. where I've been, uh, every place is different, right? Every place has different uh, obstacles they have to come over. But the thing that I've found is that if there's one guy in the room saying, well, you can't do that here, there's six other guys in the room that are already doing it. Right. And it always outweighs them. Like there's always more guys doing it than the ones that say you can't do it. So that's one of the reasons we went out there is, is uh, in our, you know, investigations for across Canada. Kamloops, British Columbia came up as the driest city in Canada. So we wanted to go out there and, and show somewhere, you know, a, an environment that's pretty dry that uh, there's an advanced grazing system working. And it was really neat to go to Joseph's place and see the, the sheep out on, you know, they're doing, what was it about 700 sheep, Joseph, plus or minus something like that. You can just nod. Yeah, that's
2: right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Perfect. About seven, 700 Ulam pairs.
0: Yeah. So, and they're in a very extreme environment now we went out there to the driest area in, in the in the country and they were having the wettest year they've ever had. <laughs> so it was kind of, not, <laughs> not, not quite. Yeah. It, it was pretty nice out there. It looked gorgeous. It was a there. nice but, spring. Yeah. Yeah. On, 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 on average, it's usually pretty dry out there and they're in extreme environment. They're in the mountains. So they're, Showing that we can do this even in extreme environments, so that's why we really wanted to go out there and take a look at it. So, um, yeah, so I'm excited to to uh, talk a little bit more with Joseph here tonight, and and uh, let's get some good questions at him, and I'm sure he's going to be uh, more than happy to answer them for us. So go ahead.
1: So Joseph, if you want to give a quick, you know, 10-15 minute introduction about yourself and your ranch and the work that you guys do there, that'd be fantastic. And what you think about silver past silver pastures, sheep, and grazing?
2: Yeah, you bet. Um, and just, yeah, thank you guys so much for having me on. It's a undeserving honor, <laughs> it feels. Um, anyway, so kind of my family history, I'm personally, I'm a fourth generation rancher. Um, my great grandfather homesteaded our operation in 1906, and he purchased his first sheep in 1914. And to this day, sheep have been our centerpiece enterprise. Um we currently do more than just sheep. We have a small cow calf operation, about a dozen cows uh, just for raising grass finished beef. Um, we raise and harvest our own hay as well as we sell hay. And the other thing, there's lots of other things we do as well, but I'll kind of cut into the forestry side as well and tie that in with um, silver pasture, because I think that's what we'll kind of zero in tonight. So the about 50% of our land, um, private land is actually densely covered in forest, and it's not even pasturable at all. Um, we have about 1800 acres and about eight to 900 acres is is densely wooded. So um, yeah, we only have about seven ish, six to 700 acres that are grazeable. And that includes about 110, 110 acres of, of hayland. So there's a lot of interface areas where the forest meets our pasture and it's provided a lot of opportunities for creating um, both tree crop as well as forage crop and that kind of that history also goes uh, further back into our, our history not on our private land but where we used to range our sheep we used to have about 1300 ewes and the only way we were able to do that with such a small land base was through um quite a large range and some of it was Alpine and some of it, most of it subalpine. and it worked really well for many, many years. Up until recently, um, we'd go up there with a shepherd and, um, just tend the sheep. And we, we kind of did a rotational grazing program on that. We would target clear cut logging, um, follow-up. Sometimes we were even paid by the timber, uh, companies that did like the, the mills and, and, uh, provincial timber sales. They would actually pay us to manage the the regrowing tree stands, the the planted trees. So that worked really, really well, especially in the subalpine areas, because those types of trees that were growing, uh, balsam and spruce, are not palatable to sheep whatsoever. So it worked out really well. And we had just tons and tons of high quality subalpine and alpine forage. Um, We ended up getting out of that actually Uh, 2018 was the last year we did that. We were just starting to lose lose these really nice, impressive cut blocks. They were growing up and there was less and less area um, that was accessible to us. And a lot of the logging practices were changing and road deactivations and predation just got pretty much unmanageable. So a lot of different reasons there. Um, So in, in 2019 was the first year we decided to keep our whole flock on our private property. And at that point, at that point, we were down to between six and seven hundred ewes. Uh, we'd we'd gone down over the years some time ago, um, so it was it was a doable switch. Uh, we didn't have to destock, but we had to make a lot of changes to the way we managed our private property, and that was the year we really really got into intensive rotational grazing, uh, at least on part of our property. We'd always done rotational grazing on our private property to an extent, mainly just because we had a lot of little fields that were isolated with roads and rivers and forests and and other um, geographic obstacles. So we were reasonably rotational anyway, but we had some larger pasture units that, you know, that were like 200 acres that um, we had to chop up. We had hayland that we needed to separate and subdivide and um so 2019 and 2020 we just all we did was uh set up permanent high tensile fences and got into temporary fencing got a sheep trained to a single wire of polybraid that was pretty cool and um so that's kind of as far as you know temporary intensive rotational grazing with with electric fence that's kind of how long we've been into it um but we've done lots of different types of rotational grazing and um just back kind of back to the forest we we do have a forestry program which is kind of a definitely a significant portion of our of our operations income um so we manage we manage our forested land as a woodlot basically like a tree farm the trees are timber trees are highly valued in british columbia we got a lot of sawmills even though there's lots closing down there's still lots of sawmills and the demand is is up and down so we just hit the the markets um accordingly and it it's been quite lucrative for us just rotation rotationally logging um the land that we have and then we also have a a uh, crown land woodlot license which is a little bit unique to british columbia but it's it's basically just another tree farm license that we got awarded um through through a bid and it's adjacent to our private property so Seeing as now that we're doing something different that we don't, we're don't we not going to the range, uh, in addition to changes like more fences, more water for intensive rotational grazing, we've had to start also looking for more land opportunities, more grazing opportunities. And one of the disadvantages we have is we are not surrounded by very much land that is um, opportune to rent. There's There's very little agricultural land in our area, we're in quite a, a tight little valley, and most of the farms are pretty pretty uh, spaced apart, and there's not that much opportunity for that. So we kind of thought, well, hey, you know, we've got all this land, a lot of it is in timber, and we want to keep it in timber. That's a viable crop for us, but we also want to uh, you know increase the sustainability of our livestock. That's very important to us. and um so, we've been we've been kind of working on different areas for the last several years with a with a greater focus recently i'd say and basically what that kind of entails is targeting a lot of it actually is targeting pastures that just grew into timber um like we got a lot our we're predominantly douglas fir which is a kind of a softwood i guess <laughs> and so we're we're mostly needle trees Conifers, um, so that's kind of what grows, and we've got some pastures that have pretty much gotten over, overgrown over the years. There were pastures and side hills that my great grandfather um, slashed with an axe and a bow saw, and then my grandfather had it logged, then my dad had it logged, and so we keep on trying to hit these, you know, these pastures. They're not, they're not. Uh, you can't hit them with with brush hogs or anything. And one of one of the biggest problems is we don't we don't currently have them fenced for for intensive uh, grazing, which is one of the reasons why trees keep on growing in. But the trees grow really well, and they're really healthy. We haven't had to plant any, obviously. And um, so we've just decided, okay, well, if we can't beat them, let's let's start managing them. And um, basically, what that management practice is, it's we experiment with a lot of different um practices but the primary one that i like it's slow but as long as you keep at it you can get a lot of area covered and it basically entails going in with a chainsaw and a prune saw and thinning out the stand um some places will will kind of open up existing meadows and then um kind of leave clusters of trees lightly uh lightly thinned and then we'll prune them up uh, as high as one third of the tree, or if it's a really tall tree, just as high as you can reach, you know, 16, 20 feet with a telescoping prune saw. And we've also just switched to an electric battery powered prune saw, which uh, it's like a little chainsaw and that just works awesome. It's so fast. So, um yeah, that's been re- working really well. We basically clean out, um, manage the stand, we leave the best trees, and uh, then the following year we bring in uh, we bring in animals and, and start growing forage. So that's kind of what we're into at this point.
1: This might be a kind of basic question, and I know you kind of already said it in, in what you just said, but can you explain what silvopasture actually means?
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, so two, it's a two-part word, obviously. Silvo comes from silviculture, which means basically um the the culturing cultivation of forest crops the farming of the forest so to speak and pasture we're we're pretty all familiar with that so it, basically it's kind of combining the two into a symbiosis um so we're growing two crops on the same acreage so to speak um, we're not growing the same timber volume that you could be growing on say uh you know a managed plantation uh, where you're planting 1200 stems to the hectare um of, of seedlings and you know it's very tight spacing we're looking more at like 500 trees to the to the hectare hectares 2.2 acres right so quite a quite a smaller stand but because the, the trees are more spaced they're growing way faster and there's enough light hitting the forest floor that we can start growing forages and it's it's also a very a very excellent place to be in extreme weather conditions. Um, um, so that we'll, we'll often graze those areas in the heat of summer for the shade. Joseph, I'm really impressed at
0: the the long term planning, <laughs> right? We're like we're talking generations, yeah. right? We're we're planning for generations ahead of us. So sure, that's that's really cool.
2: So I was just gonna say, yeah, it's one of those things where you know, it, if you love it, which I do, I. It's one of my pastimes. I love just working in the forest. Um, so it's it's a good winter pastime. You go up, you know, go up on the snowmobile with your tools and um, there's not too much else you can do, but um, you can always prune and space a few trees.
1: So we have Ruth up. Are you ready to go, Ruth? Uh, what is the
3: difference between silver pasture and agroforestry?
2: Yeah, so uh silvo pastures is, is absolutely a an extension of agroforestry or or a type of agroforestry I should say. And um there's actually lots obviously lots of different ways you can um integrate multi-layers of agroforestry for I'll give one example on a very small scale. Um something else we're doing um I really wanted to establish a fruit orchard um on our farm again over over long term. So we just, you know, started off by planting like twenty fruit trees um, in a pasture that desperately needed shade, where we usually keep our our ram flock. And so we spaced them out quite a bit more than you normally would in a, you know, in a in an orchard setting. And then we built little semi temporary electric fence enclosures around them, just with um, PVC posts and uh, and poly braid. And just linking them all together, each pen together with a insulated underground insulated wire. And so the idea is once those trees get tall enough, the bark gets thick enough, then they're safe to have animals graze around them. And so then now you're not only producing shade, forage, you're also producing uh, a food crop as well. So yeah, good good question. I was going to mention that as well, but it's definitely a uh, an aspect of agroforestry.
1: Awesome. Steve, do you have any comments on that?
0: Yeah, no, this is not really my topic. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay mostly quiet probably tonight and, and listen more than talk. But uh, yeah, I, I'll, I'll throw my two
4: bits in when I need to.
1: Okay, sounds good. Etienne, you're up next.
4: <laughs> Hi. Uh, so I was wondering, what are your do's and don'ts for grazing sheep in civil pastures? And how can you tell that the bush is reacting in a healthy way to the way you manage the sheep in it?
2: Yeah. Awesome. Awesome question. Thank you. Um, Yeah. So do's and don'ts. Uh, I'll try to think of a couple here. Okay. One right off the top of my head. This was, this was a mistake my father made that I got to learn from. So that's always nice. Um, So what my dad did is he had a, he had a forest that was mostly like kind of junky, junky wood in terms of timber value not um so it was like aspen and lots of shrubbery it was in a in kind of a bottom field near near the river backwater so got a lot of moisture really good growing site just tons and tons of brush and shrubs and he logged what timber there was in there and then hired the guy to go around with an excavator and just kind of clear land pull out trees and and bushes by the roots and um you know make kind of just declare war on the trees kind of thing. And so I think it did a pretty good job, piled everything up, burnt it. The The sheep weren't too interested in going in there because it was just a whole bunch of regrown shrubs and aspen, which I mean, sheep love leaves. That is a, that is a plus. Um, but it just wasn't, it wasn't uh, conducive enough for grazing. So, and, and then they never got fenced or set up with water. So they couldn't just force the sheep to stay in there. They just kind of expected them to go in and out, and they spent almost no time. So there was no there was no animal to manage, no herbivore to manage the fastly regrowing um, trees that were coming back in. So it very quickly turned into a forest. It's got merchantable trees in there now, and he probably cleared it just before I was born. So we're working on the same pasture again, just a little bit differently. Again, kind of that small bite method. We're just kind of pulling off small bites. And the other thing I'm doing is one of the things I should mention. Some of you probably already might know this, but uh, it was a tip I learned actually from uh, another recorded it was a recorded session with Ian Mitchell Innes, who teaches the holistic um, holistic management school. And one thing he mentioned that just totally hit home with me. He said that a forest has to have dominantly fungal life in the soil, more fungus than bacteria. A pasture, a grassland, has to have at least a ratio of 50-50, 50% 50 bacteria, 50% fungi. And that's how a grassland thrives and a forest thrives with mostly fungal activity. And then it just totally light went on and I realized, well... It's because we're not getting enough animal activity. We're not getting enough bacterial inoculation, like Steve's always talking about, and it's just so true. You got to get the manure and the urine, the saliva, the you know the mucus, everything. Animals laying down, hoof action. Um, so basically, the biggest don't in doing this kind of practice is don't go and go crazy with the rush removal without a really good plan of incorporating livestock like right out after like the spring after it's just super crucial and another don't i could i could say is a little bit more minor but it's worth mentioning with conifer trees so your needle trees cone bearing mostly softwoods when you prune them and of course you don't typically prune deciduous um hardwoods but conifers you do you get a lot of benefit from doing that um so we prune them with our prune saw and that can either be a pull saw manual pull saw or like i said a, a battery operated chainsaw on a telescope and you got to cut those limbs right flush with the trunk of the tree and leave like no little green sprigs um shoots behind or else now that you've pruned everything if there's one little sprig behind it's gonna shoot right out again same thing goes for when you're actually cutting. Tr- cutting saplings and trees down, like smaller trees, juveniles. Uh, If you cut the stump a little too high and it's got, you know, a couple of sprigs growing at the base, that's a common um, uh, Christmas tree regeneration method, actually. You cut a Christmas tree a little bit high and you leave a sprig at the bottom and then it it grows back up from the stump. So just little things like that, like you might leave a tiny pinky finger-sized offshoot uh, whether on a branch or on a stump, but the next year it could be several, you know, a foot, a foot grown, and then you got a forest growing up behind you. So that's kind of my biggest goal is uh, not having to to treat uh, the same area more than once. And so there's those are just some tips that I've uh, figured out there. So I, I hope, I don't, I'm not sure if that answers your question or not.
0: One of the things that I've uh... yeah, no, that's good. Oh, sorry, attend. <laughs> one of the things that I've seen kind of over the years or, or what I've been uh, learned about forestry is, is what's your goal behind it, right? Mm-hmm. Is your goal to get rid of the trees is your goal to have silver pasture in the middle, or is your goal to have a sustainable forest uh, that, you know, is shelter for your animals. So I think we got to, you know, sometimes step back and say, what is our goals in the first place? Like if you're, if you're in an environment with lots of trees, right. And they're constantly overgrowing. you want to, you want to hammer them. You want to get rid of them. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're in an environment with not very many trees, you want to protect them and, and try and encourage them to grow. So depending on the environment is, you know, the, the way we have to look at how we're managing those. And, and like Joseph said, the, the fungal to bacteria ratio is important to that, you know, under, under trees is, is highly fungal, uh, you know, in your, you know, in your cultivated field, all of a sudden a bunch of weeds comes up, that's highly bacterial ideal situation if you want some some pasture you want one to one somewhere in the middle so we, we got to kind of look at that is where we're starting from and where we want to be in 10 or 15 or 20 years. So
2: yeah totally like um yeah that that's that's excellent advice you just have to have a good plan um with what you what's your end result. What do you what do you want to accomplish before you start packing things down or planting things. And that that's a good point too because if you're in say a prairie situation and you already have that high bacterial ratio and it's it's difficult to get trees established. So instead of, you might be trading your chainsaw and tr- saw in for a tree plant and shovel.
1: Perfect. I would say that actually goes for any type of grazing, whether it's silvopasture or not. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. interesting comment. Uh, next up, we have Michelle's iPad. Are you ready, Michelle? Maybe Michelle? Okay, I'll read it out. Um, how do you rotate the sheep in the forest? Do you use temporary fencing?
2: Yeah, so it, uh, it kind of depends on what we have set up. And a lot of it, just because it's largely not yet complete on a lot of these pasture areas, pasture units that we're working on. Um, so some of them aren't really fenced or watered. So we kind of resort to a lot of our old-fashioned uh, shepherding instincts. So uh, that might just mean going up with one or two people and physically holding the animals, the sheep in areas. And then that's also another really good time to do a little bit of tree management. So usually we'll send the shepherds up with, you know, a set of, you know, prune lopper shears or, uh, you know, something quiet that's not going to make a bunch of noise for the sheep. And it's amazing how much you can get done without motorized equipment. And so they're, you know, obviously watching, watching for predators, keeping the animals in the right location and doing a little bit of tree trimming as well. And then if that's another thing, if there's not water um, in that area, then we'll be bringing them back to another location where there will be water for them to bed and then go back up to the grazing area. So kind of one of our biggest, one of the largest pasture units kind of that I've been describing largely, that's kind of like that. We actually just last year we we put in a gravity water system water pipe and um so at least we got water to the area I'm, i let whenever i can i like to get water in before i put fences in it's usually usually what you have to do anyway because you, you put a fence in with no water and kind of what's the point so um yeah our, our plan going forward now that we have water is we're going to do a perimeter high tensile fence and with Enough spacing, we'll probably have another high tensile fence down the middle of the pasture just so that we can run polybraid. So we are going to attempt at doing um, you know intensive high rotation grazing uh, in those areas as well. And another advantage that you can use if you already have the trees prune trees, um especially with poly braid material for electric fence and and I've done this for uh, bordering off pastures that You know just kind of had a drift fence that wasn't working or whatever um just running screw and insulators on a board nailed onto a tree um, saves on a lot of a lot of posts you scrap boards screw and insulators which are super cheap and then even if you have a bunch of kinks and corners and it's not a perfectly straight fence that's the advantage of using you know one-eighth poly braid it's strong it's light you don't need a bunch of braces it's way more expensive per foot than high tensile but when you factor in you don't need a bunch of posts you don't need braces um it it gets very economical especially if you're only only running one or two strands so yeah so those are that's kind of the fencing strategy and then when we have no fencing strategy shepherding
1: great thank you we have nathan daniels up next
2: Hey, great thank you that's been so interesting
4: um one one of my questions was just about about predators um having lost some calves <laughs> to to wolves um in the sort of Quinell area
2: what what's worked for you what hasn't worked for you both when you were on the range and on your own home place um and then what about lambing do you do you try to lamb out on pasture
4: or do you do you do that in the barn
2: yeah for sure well got sheep you're gonna have predators mm-hmm. um And obviously with, with cattle and calves too. So we rely super heavily on guardian dogs. Um, We've, we've had guardian dogs since uh, I don't, probably 1995 was when we first got them Um, up until then it was just strictly shepherds. And even, even on the domestic pastures, we had to have a shepherd um, with a rifle uh, ready to go. Right. So even on the range when we had, I think the most guardian dogs we ever had were about seven the, the breeds that we usually would run would be, um, when we started out with some Pyrenees, we, did, we really like the Marama, and we've had Akbash and Akbash Marama. And um, we currently are, are breeding uh, and have a, have a batch of Marama Pyrenees. So we've played around with a few other breeds. Um, Maramas, as far as I can say, I'm not saying that they're the best breed out there, but out of all the breeds we've tried, they've worked really well um they're good around people you can train them to not bond to you and to bond to the sheep so I mean, that's that's kind of a whole nother thing the training but in general they work out really really well as long as you just teach them to stay with the sheep is the big thing and you know sometimes you'll have one dog that does the job of five and sometimes you'll have five dogs that aren't very good at all so it, it just like people and employees you have to you know hire and keep the best and and uh do something with the other ones but um yeah the the guard dogs are indispensable they they pay their wages probably better than most employees when they're effective and you have the right combination and then obviously like i mean even when we were ranging on on the on the on the mountains um we always had someone with them sometimes more than one person usually that person's armed with a rifle capable of taking down Whatever might be around, which sometimes are pretty big critters, but yeah, and then the other thing, of course, since we've focused more on our private property with fencing and rotational grazing, is we've seen an enormous reduction in kills just by implementing a tighter rotational grazing, uh, especially with the guardian dogs, because if you know the, the the dogs usually go for a nap for the majority of the day. And that's when the sheep are out grazing. So if you have a one or two hundred acre field with lots of geographical dynamics, you might have a bunch of sheep, you know, down over a rise in a forest, around over a hill or something. And we've had this happen um, where a bear will come down, kill a sheep. The dogs were sleeping less than hundred yards away. They just it was just around the corner. They didn't see it. So by configuring our grazing paddocks into more like daily um size paddocks where wherever that dog is in any point of the field he can see every single sheep and that's made a huge difference and then also getting the dogs trained to electric fence it just keeps them where they're supposed to be sometimes they'll wander a bit so that's kind of our strategy there and then as far as um our lambing we kind of do we we lamb in april which is still pretty early spring for us it's it can still be really cold and nasty weather so we. Lamb close to home, and we keep a couple of paddocks that are really, really clean on our rockiest ground. And we'll lamb out because we lamb out. We have a series of of feeding corrals, so we feed twice a day and have a day feeding corral and a night feeding corral. And each corral is about three acres or so, two to three acres. Those are where they they'll have their lambs. So we got someone just monitoring the flock all the time and. As a ewe has a set of lambs, uh, we'll bring those in, make sure they're they're suckled. We don't suckle them unless they've unless they've had an issue or something, and just kind of assess the ewe. Put them into a small jug. We got like a series, a several series. We got about a hundred pens, close to a hundred pens that we call jugs. So they're like a four by six foot pen with a little roof and um, all built out of solid wood. So they'll they'll go in there for a day or two. And 90% of the time they go in for a day or two and they're out to a smaller pen where they're incorporated with a couple other sheep. And they're still close to home and they start moving into bigger bunches after that every day or every couple of days as the bunch gets bigger. It makes it easier for monitoring because we're we're feeding them by hand once they're into those smaller pens with, with uh, square bales. Like we make our own square bales, so it's not a huge expense. You know, each each group might get a bale or a couple of bales until they get bigger. So there's a lot of monitoring going on, and um, you can catch any issues. Because with sheep, like we our breed of sheep, we have a lot of twins. So majority of the time, a ewe has no problem. A good ewe has no problem carrying both twins. But sometimes, if she has a deficiency or she gets sick or something, she might only have enough milk for one. And so you got to be quick to watch. And, you know, grab a lamb that's getting a little hungry, get them on a bottle and we we'll sell them off as a bottle lamb. Um, so by the time they actually are in serious potential risk of a predator there, we're down to like one or two major bunches. And then that's usually where the dogs start residing. They They kind of get tired of hanging close to the house. And once the sheep go out to pasture. The dogs are really happy to go out to pasture too, so it, it works really well for our environment and our setup,
1: Joseph. Just before we go further, because we actually so two weeks ago we had Ross Hinter, who's part of Alberta Trappers Association, come on mm. and he was talking about predators. So, could you just go in just quickly go over the type of predators that you guys experience on Evelyn Evoli- yeah,
2: for Sure, down in the valley on uh, the domestic area, number one is coyote and. Some years bear is number one. Um, there's always more coyotes than than black bears, but that's that's kind of the biggest issue. We got cougars that pass through from time to time. You're bound to see some cougar sign at least once every year, like this winter, there's been cougar tracks nearby. Mm -hmm. Um, we got wolves that'll come down. Same same kind of thing, like with cougars, they'll come down as a pack and pass through, hopefully, usually. On up on the mountains it's a little different story that's much more their territory so we're we were getting huge packs of timber wolves uh multiple multiple packs and the last year we we were on the mountain in 2018 we actually lost about 100 head in one month primarily from wolves one night we had about 16 17 ewes and lambs that were killed just in one night in a couple hours and it was interesting because they were actually it was We figured it was several, uh, more than one pack, and they were actually teaching the pups how to kill because there was professional kills and really sloppy kills. So it it was just interesting to see how, you know, their behavior changed around, uh, their hunting behavior changed around domestic livestock, and their intelligence is just astronomical. And what we kind of found, especially with the wolves, is, every year we were up there they got smarter and they started they would kill more but we'd see less of them we saw less sign it's like they figured out where not to step so that we wouldn't find the tracks where not to poop and they would learn that well they just have they just have to you know wound an animal really bad and then they could bugger off the dogs might chase them off but then you got a mortally wounded animal And we were finding that, like, we'd we'd move animals out of one pasture area to go to the next. You're walking around a cut block, you know, thick juvenile trees, and, oh, there's a dead lamb. Oh, there's a wounded one. Got to kill it, you know. So um, they're pretty merciless, but highly intelligent. And then, especially on the mountain, we would would encounter grizzlies from time to time. Um, They are not endangered uh, (laughs) in our area or any area I'm aware of. There's just areas they prefer more of, and uh, grizzlies will actually even make the odd appearance right down in the valley here. Um, they'll graze hay fields, alfalfa fields when they start coming in. Um, but fortunately, uh, grizzlies aren't really an issue, long-term issue, domestically because they they don't care too much for people. So they they usually scurry once the the berries are ready. But yeah, that's kind of the, uh, the bouquet of, of, uh, predators that we have in a, in a nutshell.
1: Awesome.
0: Steve kind of, kind of makes our coyotes seem pretty, uh, easy Ta- to deal with. eh? yeah. Pretty team. We well, they're, know, they're, they're harder,
2: wolves. they're harder to shoot. They're a smart, smaller target target than a black bear. <laughs> <laughs> and they are for the, for the dogs too. Like they're, they're easier to, uh, you know, if you got your dogs napping in the, in the heat of the day a kite walking by is pretty easy to miss compared to a bear. You know, you can, they can smell them from yards away. And, but one thing I will say, you know, it's interesting. So this last year, just to, just to prove my point here, this last year was probably the first year we've never had a single kill, even since we've been off, been off the mountain. Like mm-hmm. the first two years we were off the mountain, we still had quite a few kills like fewer, but we had some black bear and some coyote kills and some wolf down on the domestic, uh, property. And we also, and, and so this last year we didn't, and we also had the smallest guard dog population we ever had. We only had like four and and three dogs at one point, which is pretty small. But what, what we did was the, the winter before Last year. So exactly a year ago, we were snaring. We had a a trapper helping us. My aunt is also a, a registered trapper. And so we were, we knew we had some bad coyotes that were just making consistent kills with every opportunity. So in those areas where the kills were, you know, we planted carcasses and parts of carcasses just for bait and had to had to set out some snares for like a couple of months. Like it took some time, but we ended up, I think we got about three uh coyotes and they must have been the bad ones because we had no issues uh this year and I've always believed that and we've always observed that there's some animals predators that just don't go for domestic livestock like they almost have to learn that they have to learn how easy it is and we were we were actually um grazing up doing some silvopasturing pasturing last year last summer um further up our woodlot where we had a clear cut, so it was freshly logged, there's no trees in it, and they were just grazing forage in the clear cut. So we had a couple um, people out there watching, and the one guy had seen a black bear grazing grass and berries, you know, just on the quarter corner of the clear cut, and the sheep were almost grazing up into him, and the dogs didn't notice. He just noticed there was a bunch of animals grazing, and so was he, they're omnivores. And um, they had to, they just fired a warning shot in the air and scared him off. And the dogs took off after him. And there was, there was bears all over that side hill. It was just nuts. And, but not one of them made a kill. And so I'm, I'm not a big promote proponent on, you know, my, my dad kind of is, but I'm, I'm not on shooting every um, predator on site. I mean, if you have a bad predator, obviously you don't know who's who. So sometimes you just have to kind of, you know, get what you can get just in case you get the, the, the culprit, the murderer, so to speak. And um, but if you don't have a problem and nothing new is moving in, I'm a big believer in just letting sleeping coyotes lie.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Two weeks ago, when we were talking about uh, the trapping and things like that, we talked about predators and that, that came up quite a bit, you know, training the existing predators that are there Mm -hmm. to not, attack your, you know, your livestock, that way they keep other predators out. If you've got a good set of predators in there that aren't causing a whole bunch of trouble, leave them. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, we we talked about different ways of training predators to, to uh, not, you know, think that your, your livestock are, are tasty. So um, do you do anything with electric, uh, electric fencing to train them off? I mean, uh, we had uh, a couple of years ago. Now we had uh, our neighbor right across the highway from us. Uh, their one of their steers got attacked by a cougar, right? So we have the occasional cougar that shows up, major gashes across its back or something. I don't know. They 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 determined it was a cougar attack. Right across the highway was our pasture pigs, right? Little tiny pigs. They weren't, you know, maybe 30, 40 pounds, but they were inside electric netting, right? And we mm. never had a problem. Like we we never lost a pig, but the steer got attacked right across the highway. So um I, I'm a big believer in that electric, you know, electricity somehow, somewhere can can uh, keep those predators at bay too so
2: yeah totally um and actually that was i should have mentioned that was another strategy we were using this last year partly because our guard dog force was so low um and we you know kind of the whole point of having guard dogs is so you don't have to sleep with the sheep every night (laughs) i mean when you're on the mountain that's a necessity but when um they're just out on pasture you don't want to have to do that so we were a little gun shy because we had a lot of Hills over that winter so we started setting up night corrals on our at least so so we one of our biggest pastures which is about a 200 acre um area and it's currently not set up for rotational grazing so it's 200 acres pretty much you got to continuously graze it until it's grazed and then you move out so we're usually out there for a month at a time and um so i i thought well you know one day we're we're gonna get fences set up and water set up and and do rotational and then we're not going to have we're going to have smaller paddocks and less predation pressure and that was the pasture we were getting most of them it was uh you know like a 15 minute drive from home so it was geographically distant and there's just a lot of lot of coyotes and bears in that area so i had netting so I, i set up it was a four foot tall high stuff uh sheep netting and we'd set up their 164 foot rolls i think we were doing like five uh kind of a semi-circle of five rolls so pretty good size area and so it would for for 700 sheep and their lambs it would stay clean for about three or four days and unless it got really really rainy but so you wouldn't have to move it we move it about every three or four days and then that way also cuz one of the other issues we had up there was controlling the bedding and that's when you get the majority of your manure so we'd try to you know put the salt trough and the mineral where you wanted the manure but they'd usually have their own ideas and bed everywhere where they didn't <laughs> where they didn't need the manure so um it was kind of a two-pronged two-pronged approach uh or or uh goals we were trying to accomplish and so we were we weren't rotational grazing we were rotationally bedding and so we were targeting right where we wanted the manure, and then it was also a full enclosure, um three hundred and sixty degrees. So what I was also doing was I was actually putting one of the older guard dogs in in the pen with the sheep. And I chose the one of the older ones because they're a little less ambitious. They're not going to run around as much. They're probably just going to sit on their butt and bark, which is kind of what you want. So i just leave one inside and the others could run around and chase things into the bush all they wanted. So um, that was a big reason why I think we didn't have too many losses. Because like, you know, 80% of your kills, at least with us, tend to be at nighttime. That's when most of the predators are, are out. And that's just the most opportune time. So glad you brought that up. That That's worked really well for us. The other thing too, because uh, I get a lot of questions on electric fencing i i sell electric fencing now (laughs) so people ask me a lot about it about predators i typically say well you got to build like a predator proof fence um because you know if you'd have like i got a lot of four wire 30 inch high high tensile fences um on my rotational pasture and that works you know awesome for the sheep and awesome for the guard dogs but coyotes, if they don't know it's hot, they're just going to jump through those six-inch space wires like nothing, and they're not going to get hit. And I've seen them do that lots. I, you know, you see a coyote running down the field, and they just dart under the fence so fast they didn't get a chance to get shocked. So I, I when I have people ask me about predator-proof fence, I'll I'd, I'd say, "Well, you got to build it like every three inches have a wire for quite a ways and all this." I had an interesting experience last fall. I was um, just you know let my sheep into the next paddock where we had perimeter four strand fences and so i'm i'm setting up the water the water tub and i looked down at the edge of the field you and know, all the sheep are running back toward me i thought what the heck and then i saw it was a coyote he wasn't chasing the sheep he was just kind of running running down the field the dogs were where i was so i jumped on the quad and just i'll chase them far away i didn't have a rifle so i i chased him and towards where there was a dead end, kind of down an alley, there was a fence on both sides, an electric fence about a hundred feet apart. And so he's going down this narrow alley and there's a four strand fence at the end. And i like, okay, yeah, he's just going to dart right through like they always do. And he stopped like dead. And then he kind of looked at me. He saw I was still coming. And then he just ping pong, ping pong back and forth between the two fences. He couldn't figure out what to do and they're they're not good jumpers so even 30 inches he couldn't he wouldn't jump he must have learned and been trained at some point what that fence could do because after ping-ponging through four times he turned around and ran right back towards me and he ran right past me about 30 feet away he ran back where the dogs were stationed and he kind of darted around the dogs while they tried to get him and <laughs> right back up uh up the mountain where he came from so You know, even a more minimal fence like that, if you have it on turned on all the time, which is, of course, what you're supposed to do, if you can keep the grass shorted out, also keep it on to keep the wildlife trained. And, um, you know, they might go through it 50 times without getting shocked, but eventually they probably will get shocked. Yeah. So they they do get trained just like our livestock.
1: Awesome. If anyone is interested, that podcast is available, the one last week or two weeks ago with Ross Hinter, and it was really good as well. So we'll move on from there. Tyler, you're up next. I see your camera's on there. radio. you go. Yes. So you've already
2: touched on it a bit, but I just want to go into a little more detail about how your water is set up in relationship to your paddocks and How you manage that, whether it's strip grazing or individual paddocks, each with their own water, whether you just uh, leave the backs of the bags open and they travel back and forth to the water and just a little more detail if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, for sure. So we have multiple different systems and worked out actually really well where we did the majority of our electric fencing for kind of the one pasture unit that we wanted to be more intensive, like daily moves and that kind of thing. It was, we, we chose that area to start first because it was our best land. It was our most productive land. It was closest, you know, to the ranch headquarters. And the other reason was one of the reasons why it was our best land is we have a full irrigation system, um, in that whole area. So we're still kind of from the stone age. So we're, we're doing hand lines for the most part, but, Their gravity, it's a gravity system, comes out of a creek. That's one of our biggest advantages where we are, you know, we're not in the Rockies, but we're close to the Rockies. And uh, the mountain mountain that we're at the foot of um, releases its winter snow very slowly. So we have dependable water, at least on this main system, till, well, usually year-round. Like the last couple of years where we had really significant droughts, we had to reduce our irrigation a little bit. Um, but we were still st- tons of water for, um, watering animals and doesn't cost anything to, to energize, obviously. So we already had a grid of, um, aluminum pipes. Um, they're just kind of clicked together, latch system. Um, some of them we had, we, cause they go through the middle of fields that we, that we hay harvest and just kind of in the winter time, we take them apart and pile them up and put them back together again, like Lego. So we already had that network, it wasn't quite enough in some areas to reach. So um I just got lots of um inch and a half and and 2 inch poly pipe, polyethylene pipe and running that most of it above ground following our fence fence lines just so the grass keeps it cool in the summertime. And another reason why it's easier for us to get away with with above ground water systems even with black pipe is because We have a gravity system it doesn't cost us anything uh, other than a bit of pressure to just keep the the valve at the very end of the line open just just enough to keep it cool you know if it was uh strictly a float valve system because you were running off a pump uh or or maybe it was gravity just really limited water supply um then yeah we'd probably have to put that underground in areas but that's been working really well um we've got with the aluminum pipe system the hand lines it's got a a hydrant about every 140 feet so it's all above ground so you just have a, a portable hydrant you throw sorry a portable valve opener that you put on the hydrant and then a special fitting just to get to a garden hose for for watering livestock and so in those situations it's like perfect ideal you can you can keep a front fence and a back fence if if we're doing um, you know, I'll try stock density grazing and we'll just move that water tub. Um, we'll still have a float valve on the water tub, but it just kind of leaks a little bit. So it keeps moving. And then we'll just move the tub with, with the, with the livestock. And then obviously there are other areas where we'll have limited water. You can only, like well, have one water point. And in, especially like with when I'm grazing my cows, because they're a smaller herd, with all the calves and stalkers and everything it's like 30 head so small herd of animals small paddocks so that that made gave me more issues uh with water than the sheep because you got a massive paddock you can you know you can run the full span of the field to get up where the water is with the with the cow herd you can't really so even when we were grazing these areas where we had um have access to the irrigation system the fields are so long in order to do a nice rotational paddock size we couldn't go the full span of the field so i've played around with with um in some situations just like you said not having a back fence letting them walk back for that you know four day period until the grass starts to regrow and in other areas the more i do it kind of the more i like it is building an alley a portable alleyway where the alley just kind of you know it's kind of hard to describe but the alley gets a little bit longer with every paddock move so you close you open the next paddock up you run extend the alley to that paddock so you close off the one they were just on and then they can always walk back down like uh you should keep it like 10 12 feet wide or so and um, then they're just walking back and forth. So that's worked really well for me as well. And then as mentioned earlier on some of these very undeveloped um, pastures that are, you know, mostly silvopastures, where we'll have like one water point and and it's quite a ways from where they're grazing. We're doing the take them out to graze, bring them back, bedding them close to the water source. And that's kind of just a temporary temporary fix because our plan is to extend that water source further you know one year you buy a few thousand feet of pipe you get to where you need to go next year you buy another thousand feet of pipe and just as you can afford keep extending those lines out and um you know placing valves where you need and i i use a lot of bigger pipe too like i mentioned inch and a half and 2 inch unless you're going an insane distance that's not going to be or, or a huge herd of animals that's not going to be necessary for that side of the pipe but what we typically do when we extend a line out it, we could probably also use irrigation on that pasture as well if we don't have stock watering it means we, we don't have irrigation watering so i like to just spend the extra money for like a two inch line or an inch and a half and then you can use either we've started using those earpod um, or k-line is another brand name where it's like five to 10 sprinkler plastic pods linked together on about a 300 foot length of hose. It's like a snake train. And you just pull it around in a grid pattern with an ATV. There's there's lots of good information on on YouTube online for K-Line and Europod. So they're a great irrigation system that you can use on a lot of livestock watering systems just because they don't need a huge amount of pressure. And they're easy to move. So you can get over a large large area relatively quickly. So anytime I can do a multi-purpose investment like stock water and irrigation, I'll uh I'll definitely prioritize that.
1: Perfect. Thanks. Uh next up we have Bram. Good to see you again.
4: Yeah, just good to see you. Joseph I'm curious about your your intensive grazing have you seen a change in your fleece density and volume and does that make a difference as you market your fleeces as you change your densities or how you graze your, your sheep um i haven't
2: seen it's a good question i haven't seen a notable notable difference in fleeces they're they're still pretty but the, the the breed we have is corriedale so they are they are dual purpose. They have a good quality fleece. They're kind of they were bred out of the merinos, but they don't have nearly as long a fleece as the merinos do. So you know kind of a, a medium length fleece, I guess. So it doesn't take an insane amount of energy to grow out. The other thing, I guess, with the rotational is our our intensive rotational grazing is kind of seasonal for when we're grazing those specific pastors that we have the ability to do that at this point so there's still a lot of areas that we're we're having to raise continuously on you know not continuously all year obviously but continuously on a month basis say and um you know so there's still the the drawbacks there but um i can definitely say like we we part of our marketing program most of our lambs we sell live just because that's where the market is And we, we, um, do about a hundred lambs ourselves that we finish. And then we sell to, to, uh, direct to consumers and as meat. So the finisher group that I took out this last year, I really wanted to just, you know, do the best I could really good rotational program. And so I, after they were weaned, I grazed them for about a month. And so I put them on our, our best pasture, gave them, actually pretty good sized paddocks because the intention wasn't to maximize utilization or soil impact the it it was to get maximum nutrient into the animal as consistently as possible so i was really just tip grazing just grazing the very very best um there were larger paddocks so you know they were in there for a few days at a time and then i i'd give them access to another strip a few days and they're just grazing you know clover tips and and second growth grass tips and i would say this last year they finished better consistently than i've ever seen and that was the biggest difference we did as opposed to previous years where we either just give them the, the same field the same 20 acre field and just let them pick away at it over the course of a month compared to doing what we did last year it was a huge difference. Um, Like I'd say our average finished hanging weight, like weight after butcher of the carcass was typically like we were, we were stretched to get 40 pounds and this is on a six, seven month old and um, they're, they're a smaller animal too, but strictly on grass, we were struggling to get a 40 pound carcass. And I'd say this last year, we averaged probably out of a hundred lambs averaged about 45 pounds. So um which is which is pretty big because they pretty much max out at 50 that's that's as big as they get unless they're just putting on fat so definitely some differences there
4: your the carcasses are better you've got challenges though and in, in trying to find a market then for your fleece for your well,
2: the, so we yes and no we sell the majority of our fleeces in packed packed bags so we sell most of them to the Canadian cooperative wool growers, and um we get kind of a premium price because we're growing that premium breed. You know, they're associated to the merino, the corridales are, so it's a finer wool fiber. And so we're getting around two dollars, just over two dollars uh, a pound raw weight, which is pretty good. I mean, it's still expensive to shear, it's time consuming to do. Um, we're also we actually just picked up a few hundred pounds of our own processed wool from Carstairs um, just last couple of weeks ago. So um, we're we've done that in the past too where we're selling processed yarn and bat and um, socks and that kind of thing. So um, sell them at farmers' markets or just word of mouth. Sometimes you get a hold of a spinning club and they buy all kinds from you. So there's definitely opportunities there. The, the fleece, though, is notoriously difficult to market.
0: I got to say that I went out to the AGM uh, this uh, summer at uh, close to Joseph. Uh, I don't know what it was for, for the BC sheep federation BC or what it was. Sheep
2: it? Federation. Yeah. yeah.
0: Okay. And uh, I got a speaker gift and I got a really nice pair of socks that are mm-hmm. very warm. <laughs> I'm pretty
2: happy with that. So you just had to mention socks. So I had to bring that up. I got a nice pair.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, for sure. Like There's a lot more and more people that are doing the cottage industry. You know, I think that's kind of where we have to do it because it's it's really easy to get taken advantage of, um, you know, trying to sell bulk raw wool because there's just there's so much of it. And there's not enough market, unfortunately, like we're all we all wear plastic and cotton most of the time. It's kind of a shame, but um, there's more and more people that are understanding the um, not just like health benefits and quality benefits, but obviously environmental benefits of, uh, using wool fiber. And, um, I mean, even, you know, it used to be like, oh, if you want to be more environmental, wear cotton. Well, look at how cotton's grown. It's, it's sick. It's, it's no different than corn. Um, it's another big, massive monocrop crop. So I I try to tell people all the time. It's like, well, don't, don't think just about eating what kind of meat you're going to eat or vegetables you're gonna eat to, you know, do good by your environment and the planet. Look at what you're wearing. And um, you know, wool's fully biodegradable, rots in a compost heap, and the sheep grows it every single year, whether it wants to or not. We should start a bit of a promotion about
0: saving the baby polyesters.
1: I was gonna say <laughs> right in the after in the after networking, networking. If you guys want to go into my rants about the importance of wearing fur and wool. <laughs> yeah,
4: yeah. Joseph, why why I was asking is some of the, back in my head, all the work they did at Mini Buries, there was an inverse between the stocking density and the wool uh, volume that they could pull off, and, but I couldn't see anything at the station, you know, cam loop. So i would be it'd be curious as, you know, whether or not that inverse between stocking density and, and wool volume continues up in your neck of the woods versus, versus the needle and thread territory.
2: Yeah, that that would be interesting to do actually. Um I haven't heard heard that. stat. I mean it makes sense because the, you know, it's just like it's fat essentially. Um it's it's excess nutrients that's growing growing the wool. So, you know, if they're if they're putting aside excess nutrients because of the way we're grazing um and stocking density and things like that, things like that, it should translate to better fiber density and length. So, that would be actually an interesting thing to do, measure average lengths. And then as we increase increase our stock density um, to measure that, or even just to weigh, weigh the average fleece kind of thing.
1: Cool, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Great, and next up we have Lynn Powell.
3: Hi, um, so I had a couple of different questions and we'll all start with, go through them how many dogs would you have on just like 22 acres and then also uh, would you get dogs at the same time as you're getting sheep If like you're just starting up so i'm planning to get like between five and ten sheep this summer and then should i get a dog at the same time should i get puppy should i get an adult love to hear your thoughts
2: you betcha That's a super good question because it's uh it's easy. It's easy to do wrong too. <laughs> um, yeah. as far as number, a number of dogs in most cases, I would always recommend get at least two, um, on like 22 acres, you would probably be fine with one really good one, which might work or start with one and then consider getting a second one. Once that one's matured and kind of proved himself. Um, that way it, it can, it is a challenge when you start with say two young dogs or two, two pups, we're currently trying to run five. We sold two. We haven't been able to sell any more. They're <laughs> about seven months, and it is a challenge because when you have a couple of young pups with sheep, they start playing, and the sheep start running, and then puppies do what puppies do—they start chasing. And that's kind of the biggest mm-hmm. challenge, uh, at least nowadays it seems, um, with training guard dogs is training cha- training them to not tra- chase sheep. They love pulling the wool out like cotton candy almost. <laughs> And, um, so you'll, you'll find tufts of wool out if you're, um, negating (laughs) that, but yeah, one to two for kind of your, your size, I would definitely get them with the sheep. If you got them before you had sheep, they're going to, they got a bond to someone or something, and then they're probably going to bond to you. And that's just the worst thing you can do with, uh, with a guardian dog. It's not like a border collie or your host dog. Um, if they bond to you, they're going to be on your doorstep and they're going to be looking for you. They're going to be protecting you and they're not going to really give a care about sheep and not to say that they should be scared of you by any means, like they should fear you. I like it when a guard dog's a little bit skittish around you, but you can always walk up, but kind of with caution, like you kind of have to put your hand out and kind of sidle up so they don't run off. That's kind of my favorite disposition. And mm-hmm. Especially with males if if they don't already or if you're starting with a pup never 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 reward them or pet them unless they're on their back like make them roll over on their back show their stomach and scratch their stomach i i won't pet any young male anywhere but his his undercarriage and i've had dogs where they didn't get into that custom and by the time they got a little mature you couldn't get up to them unless you were on your knees and that's not what you want to do so, no do you
3: do you stay neuter yours?
2: Yeah, if we if we don't have any plans to breed, then we do absolutely. Um, I'm not too worried about waiting. Like you know, some people are like, oh, they got to be three years old before you neuter them, so they're fully mature. Um, the the thing is, yeah, they they might they might be a little more. They'll stay more alpha in my experience. If you neuter them late, if they're already. Kind of an alpha personality, they'll stay more alpha, but yeah. if you have more than one dog, well you only want one alpha, and so if you already have your established alpha and you're bringing on new males, I'd get them neutered as soon as the vet recommends as early as possible. Um, there's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with a a submissive guard dog uh, submissive to the other dogs because fights can be an issue, obviously mm-hmm. submissive to to the people, and they'll mm-hmm. wander less. Um, you don't really, some people think, oh yeah, they're, they were up way up the mountain chasing kites. There's no sheep up there. Why, why would they chase kites up there? And that's a common tactic that kites and wolves use. They'll actually lure a dog away or all the dogs and another couple of, of canine will come in and they'll just slaughter. Um, they're really smart that way. So if you can train a dog to never leave the sheep, it's hard, but if you can train them to like, that's their comfort zone, that's Mm -hmm. perfect. It's absolutely perfect.
1: Yeah. And, okay. yeah my um, last
2: question was on uh, puppies versus mature. Um, I, would, I would always go with pups in the pup phase unless you can get like a guaranteed trained dog from someone, like another sheep operation that says, hey, I have this trained dog. I'm selling him as a trained dog. If he doesn't work out, I'll refund him if you bring him back. I would I would enter into that situation. Okay,
3: so I have a couple other questions. Um, do you have any issues with CL, Medi, Yonis, or do you even like track that?
2: Yeah, so CL, like lymphadenitis. Um, there and there are other there are other um, diseases similar to caseous that aren't actually caceous too. Like, do you have the <laughs> pussy looking cysts um, that come off at shearing time? I remember we had a a bunch of animals that, that had them, um, when we were shearing. we, we came across a few of them, like maybe a dozen out of, you know, 600. I just started calling them as we started seeing them and getting rid of them. Mm -hmm. And and I have, we haven't had a problem for quite a few years. Um, I know if it's actual casious, then it can be very contagious. And, um, you know, you really got to clean up if you cut into them at shearing time. And, but I mean, that, that kind of stuff, like you just got to get rid of them the easiest way to to stop that um what were your other sickness
3: and yonis
2: yeah yonis it's one of those things that's on almost every farm no one wants to admit it because there's so much fear behind it like if someone finds out you've got Yoni's, it's like having mad cow, right? And, and, uh, you know, shoot it, bury it, shut up before the feds come kind of thing. Um, I don't think it's quite that crazy now, but that, yeah, that is something that shows up very rarely for us. Um, Mm -hmm. really easy to spot and it, and it, it just hits one animal, you know, here and there, You, you don't really get a pandemic of it and mm-hmm. it's easy to spot because you'll see like an emaciated or very quickly thinning uh sheep that's young um like two three four years old once they're older they're they're immune pretty much is my understanding they can't get it past a certain age and mm-hmm. um yeah one, you know if you do find one that you suspect you can cut the guts open to look if they're all crimpy the intestines are all crimpy um that's probably what it is and yeah burn it or bury it deep somewhere just kind of practice good biohazard. And I've, I've talked to the vet too about like trying to track it down because it can be a genetic genetically passed. And mm-hmm. basically the answer I got from my vet was it's so difficult and so costly in a large block to track down every animal that might be passing it around. It's almost not even feasible. And seeing as you only get like, you know, one every several years out of several hundred sheep um it's just i don't really consider it an issue i got other things that are that are far worse than that
3: yeah and then the other one i mentioned was the meaty visa but from what i've read about that again it's it's used that are getting You know they have it <laughs> and you get rid of them
2: and sorry what was what was the name of that again i i kind of missed the, that
3: maybe visna or, or the sheep pneumonia mv
2: oh yeah like uh yeah Movi. like that's the that's the thing that um is being a problem in wild sheep right
3: i'm not sure like i know like it it can cause sin syndrome if they didn't get mastitis it can cause lumps in the udder so like you're Lones in the other are either MV or mastitis. And mm-hmm. then it also causes, it's uh, also known as like pneumonia, sheep pneumonia. So if you can cause yeah, like I, the wheezing.
2: I didn't, I, I didn't know anything of that name specific. It's probably similar to like the movie um, that domestic sheep can have that um, it's, it's more of a, it's more of an issue with wild sheep and they can get it from domestic. but. Uh, I mean, we, we have, we have different pneumonias from time to time, not usually uh, we've had the odd pneumonia pandemic with lambs specifically at the end of the season where we had to, you know, give everybody a shot of, of, of oxytetracycline. And, and that was it basically vaccinate with antibiotics, the one and only time (laughs) we ever had to do that. And there's no problem. So but yeah, as far as pneumonia, like in lambs, yeah, they get it when they get compromised. a hungry lamb, it gets a cold night, you might have the mm-hmm. odd you same thing. They probably were just at a compromised immune system as as most of us is the issue and then and yeah, like we've seen um, lumpy udders from time to time. I think that's probably usually from from uh, mastitis because you know, or a hard hard bag, but again, we The more we call those out, um, instead of trying to hang on to them, oh, she's got one good side still. She can raise a single. Um, we used to do that more and then we just had more and more problems. So the last few years we've just really been clamping down on any issue whatsoever. And, and, um, that's really been getting rid of a lot of those problems.
3: Yeah. Um, last question that I had was, you were talking a lot about an electric crooner. Yeah. What do you use or what is it called? Where do you get it?
2: Yeah. So it's actually made or at least marketed by the chainsaw company Stiel or Stihl. Uh It's the orange one, the German made, probably one of the most common chainsaw um, companies sold yeah. in Canada. And um, anyway, so the pruner that they sell, it's a telescoping, really robust telescoping pole. Uh, i think you can telescope at about 16 feet and it's got just a small probably a 16 inch or 12 inch bar with a little thin chain chain blade on it and Mm -hmm. really good heavy duty um heavy duty battery that lasts hours so you just go into the bush with two of those and it usually does all the work you'd want to do in a day anyway so um yeah we i used to use just like a japanese type uh pole prune saw on a telescope or or even on a your own homemade stick, and mm-hmm. some of those blades do work amazing um if you really like the manual tool set they they work really good. they do get dull eventually and they're a little hard to sharpen and the blades are still pretty darn expensive, like you can buy a manual pole bra- blade from Japan for like over two hundred bucks, so they're expensive. Might as well spend a bit more. I think and get a an electric if you're going to do serious serious work.
3: Yeah, I've got a bunch of. It. I mean, it's not a whole lot, but it's a lot for me. But yeah, a uh, small amount of forest to clean up, and nobody's done anything in it, and for like twelve yeah. years. So there's like a trees that are half leaning over and dead some stuff, and <laughs> yeah. That was all my questions. Thank you. Awesome. (laughs) You bet. Thank you. Thanks,
1: Thanks. Lynn. Steve, you
0: have a comment there? Yeah. Uh, Actually, I want to go back to Lynn's first question and uh, add to it for Joseph. Um, What's your opinion or, or, uh, you know, how do you deal with the difference between male and female guardian dogs? Right. Is the testosterone in the urine a big factor? You know, age difference, you know, what's the, you know... should you get a male dog or a female dog
2: or should you get it both is my question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's probably the million dollar question. <laughs> we've, we've wondered about that lots. Um, we've tried lots of com- combination, not necessarily by plan, just kind of what, what happened. <laughs> you know, it is, unless you're prepared to deal with puppies and training and selling or potentially training five pups, if you can't sell them like us, i definitely would look at just getting everybody fixed um and then it also obviously depends not just your own dogs but what about what do you have for neighbors I mean we're pretty blessed with not too many neighbors um we don't have a lot of neighbor dogs around but uh people that are that's definitely something you got to consider like is the neighbor dog going to come and breed my my bitch is is my stud going to go breed breed theirs kind of thing um you know we got border collies as well so when our intact bitch is in heat, we got to keep our two intact male border collies away and that that's a whole nother thing. They shouldn't be intact. It's one of those oh, one day we'll find we'll we'll uh have get puppies out of them still haven't, and they're like ten years old. but anyway, yeah, so you, you, we have two kind of flocks of dogs, so to speak, and it's still a challenge like even even when she's in heat the the guarding dog the, the one of the male border is just he loves her to death just in general and so when she's on heat he'll go miles to find her and uh so it's like okay get the chain out and you know he's on lockdown for for a couple weeks so yeah and as far as you know benefit i can't really speak to what might be more beneficial honestly i can speak to what might be counter beneficial like having Certainly having, trying to have two intact males at the same time maturing, I would say that's a big no, no. I know for a few years, what we did is someone, I think someone told us or suggested you should, you should keep all your males intact, but then spay all your females. And because then your males will be a little more aggressive, a little more protective and, and better guardians was kind of the idea. Well, I don't know if they were or not, but they were just a lot more aggressive, and there was a lot more brutal fights. And um I mean, let me tell you when guard dogs get into fights, it's it's not a fight you stand back and watch. You try to break it up as quickly as possible because you could very easily be losing an animal or or just a really expensive vet bill. It's just brutal. I've seen the same thing with females, so I I think that that could also be keeping them intact and then they're, you know fighting for the alpha bitch position. So the big thing, if you're gonna keep anyone intact, keep just keep one of each gender, probably would be the safe thing. Yeah. So that's kind of really all the experience I have there.
0: All right. I was kind of kind of referring to more like how does that affect your predators, right? Does that yeah, uh,
2: yeah. And that's what I was I knew that's the question you're asking. Yeah. Um, I just I I've heard lots of other theories. I can't verify if one is better than the other. Like I've I've had females that were that would fight coyotes. They'd come back with scratches and you'd find dead coyotes. Um, I've had males that did the same. So I I can't really say if there's really a powder either way, like a good guard female is just as aggressive as a guardian male. Okay. I I guess I was,
0: I I just helped my brother get a couple. He bought a small um, flock of sheep and I helped him get a couple of dogs. And uh, the advice I was given was get one male, one female. Because yeah. the female by herself, it's something about the testosterone in the urine that really helps keep predators away. So I don't know if that's uh, something you've seen before, or is that just
2: somebody something told somebody told me that the testosterone in the male's urine or the female's? Ah, uh, males, yeah, for sure, males, yeah, yeah. Because then the thing with the females is when, especially when they're in heat, I've seen this. They'll bring coyotes right in, and the coyotes and wolves will come sniffing for the females. So it can be, I guess it could be counterproductive that way too. But I, I haven't had any females that were interested in breeding the enemy. So that's a good thing.
1: Awesome. For time's sake, because we already had time that went by really fast. Uh, we'll get one more question. And then afterwards, Joseph, just so you know, we normally go into after networking, networking, you are welcome to stay we would love you to stay because there's a lot of questions we did not get to tonight um but you don't have to by any means so don't feel like like you're pressured to do so so next up we have Etienne are you ready Etienne
4: yep i'm ready um joseph i'm wondering what are your culling criteria with the sheep and what's your breeding criteria with your livestock guardian dogs
2: yeah so um for sheep and this is kind of something I've been tweaking more recently. I kind of alluded to it earlier on, you know, growing up and in the past, kind of our, especially, I think this is a bad habit we picked up back in the years when my grandfather was really trying to build, get up to a thousand ewes as quickly as possible. Like that was his goal. He bought a couple extra farms and even you know, one on debt and he managed. Managed to go up from, I don't know, it was like 350 or 400 to a thousand in only a few years. Um, really impressive. And I think the only way he must've been able to do that was to literally just keep everything like every you, you sell what you have to, and you, you obviously keep the best, but it was kind of like, no, you, you keep every breeding animal. And even if a you proves to be less than perfect, you, you work with her, you deal with her. And, and we've definitely, we have a, 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 um, a system. Like we, we're not using RFID tags. Uh, we kind of use a notch, an old-fashioned notch system on the ears of the sheep. Um it's a nice thing, like with a sheep, you just have to be able to tackle her, put her on her bum, and and you can do whatever you want to her ears, not like a cow. So that would work really well in our lambing setup, because like I'd mentioned earlier, after a set lambs, they go into a pen, single single lambs in one aisle and twins in another, and you keep track of the triplets and everything. So we would we would not have a system where we could mark each U if she ever had twins in her life. So you'd notice some ewes never, ever have a single. And some have, you know, the only problem with that, twin, that system, you can't tell how many twins they've had. But at least you can tell she's had twins. We keep track if a U lamb was born as a twin. So they get an extra mark in a designated spot. So that helps when you're um, selecting replacements. So if if your goal is um, you know prolific animals, you can choose most of your replacements not necessarily out of the biggest ewe lambs because usually those are singles, um, but the ones that have that twin mark, you know they're a little bit smaller, you know for a reason um, because they were twin. So that that's actually a more more valuable animal. So that's kind of how we track those things. And we've got other t- little tags and, and things. Um, but back to the culling, like I said, that was really where we were lacking. And my, my dad and aunt were kind of doing a lot of those. And my aunt's kind of one of those soft people that never want, want the animal to go, to <laughs> go to the slaughterhouse. Once you've, once you've chosen it to be a resident on the, on the ranch as a breeder, it was like, Oh, no, we've, we've believed in that animal. We can't, we can't, uh, send it, send it to the sale or the slaughterhouse just because it lost a lamb or, or, you know, raised a poor lamb or whatever. Um, I drastically kind of started changing that since I've been managing, um, the flock more closely and kind of taking over. And, because there was a lot of things I was noticing, everything from like difficult deliveries that you had to pull, um, um birth prolapses so any time a ewe prolapses before lambing or anytime she gets a call mark i put a black tag in her ear in the right ear and that is uh, going going for butcher at the end of the year no matter what if it's a if it's an issue that they that isn't a total deal breaker like maybe it's like okay well maybe you have an attitude problem maybe you just have bad feet maybe you still have good lambs and you're productive uh, I'll put a black tag in the left ear, and so what that indicates is, okay, if if at the end of the year there's like, you know, fifty animals with black tags, I can't afford to get rid of all of them. I know the ones with the right black are the worst; they have to go. So I'll get rid of those, and then I might choose a percentage out of the left black um, group, and or you know, if that group isn't that big, I'll get rid of all of them if I can afford it. Um, but the big thing. If they have that black tag in the left or sometimes we'll just give it another notch uh, on the left ear on the top of the ear, that'll indicate, yeah, we'll keep that U, but we'll never keep any of her progeny. So instead of marking if she had a nice looking set of ewe lambs, but maybe she's got bad feet, maybe a bad fleece, whatever, we won't mark those ewe lambs or uh, the males for ram replacements. We'll just leave them slick ears. That means they're they're basically a weather. Um, they're just market lamps. So that's kind of a way I can see that we're starting to clamp down on some of those issues and, um, and kind of make a decision. Like if you can't afford to call everything all at once sometimes, and you have to kind of decide what's the worst thing, what do we need to get rid of and leave some optionals for, you know, like I said, if you can afford it. So I'm not sure if that answers your question or
1: not
4: yeah it does on the sheep part i was also wondering what's your selective criteria to decide which dogs get gets to breed as far as the light guard Mm -hmm. dogs go
2: for sure um so of course with with the deliberate intentional breeding we've done lots of breeding in the past that wasn't intentional so at least as far as intentional the biggest thing i'm looking for um is behavior in the dog you know if it's if if it had a big issue chasing sheep as a pup, I, I might not be so keen to keep that one as a, um, you know, as a breeding female or male, you know, if they were, if they were easy to train and they stay with the sheep, all those qualities, um, that's, that's kind of what I'll go through. Obviously we've got a way it's, it's different obviously with, with the dogs, because like I just said earlier with Steve it's pretty unwise to have a lot of intact dogs i mean yeah you could have a bunch of females that are intact and a really good stud and then you know choose the females as you go but kind of once you've once you've kept your breeders you're you're kind of committed unless you unless you come to an issue that you really don't like oh you know those pups from that pair really did poorly for whatever reason And so then you might fix the male or the female and and get it by another breed or something like that. So we're still in the very early stages of that. So I I can't give you a really professional answer on that, unfortunately. The other thing I'll say, at least as far as because obviously health is important. Um, One of the issues we noticed in and it was often in the Akbash or Akbash crossbreeds is hip dysplasia. And, you know, it's something they they live with for a long time. Um, they can be in a lot of pain, but they can manage it and you can give them medication for it, but it's still it's expensive to manage and they don't function that well. So that's definitely something to look for. If you have any kind of bad joints or hip dysplasia or something like that, I would I would never breed a dog like that. That's good. Thanks.
1: Mm hmm. Awesome. Thank you. So we are well over time. Um, We'll do some closing comments, closing remarks, which is our normal, normal course. Steve, if you want to give some closing thoughts on this, and then we'll turn it over to Joseph to give closing thoughts, and then we'll go into after networking, networking.
0: Excellent. Thank you. Uh, yeah. My closing thoughts. I just really re- want to uh, show my appreciation to Joseph for, you know, coming on tonight and also allowing us to come see his ranch this, this summer. That was a highlight of my summer for sure. Joseph. And um, You notice uh, the, the background picture I stole from Valerie. That's from the Averly ranch there. Um, one of my favorite pictures I have right now, actually, I, I, I uh, very impressed at that picture, and the the guardian dog in the background there was uh, my highlight. so uh, yeah, really, really appreciative of all everything that you've done here tonight, joseph. and uh, uh, yeah, I hope we can uh, meet up again in in uh, in the future here for sure. Thank you very much,
2: yeah, for sure. well thank thank you so much, Steve. And uh, I'll be sure to tell Valerie that <laughs> she's got uh, quite the collection library of pictures. And and you do look good in there. I think you'd make a good shepherd, actually. (laughs) Catch up on eating time.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm uh, pretty new to the to the 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 herding or the the flocks. Um, I'm the backup shepherd here. Whenever something goes wrong, I get called in and I I end up saving the day. Right, Etienne. (laughs) Looking looking after the
2: employee's sheep. There we go. So,
1: Joseph, if you want to go into closing remarks, basically what we do here is just talk about maybe any encouraging comments you have for people that are either getting into sheep or are currently in sheep and civil pasture and, and for the topic of the night. Any thoughts that you have?
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, so one thing, of course, I kind of did things backwards for most people. Like We had sheep and then added like cattle uh, in addition, which. Um, and the reason why I did that actually is because one of the biggest drawbacks with sheep is parasites, as a lot of people will hear. You know, it's you, you, people might say, "Oh, you, you gotta you gotta drench them like every month," and like the New Zealanders do. Um, you don't. You can manage them better than that. But it is a, it is a struggle uh, keeping weight on them with parasites and regrazing pasture and all that. So um, cattle are just a fantastic way, not just to diversify but to mitigate. Uh, parasite load, because dissimilar species uh, are dead end hosts for dissimilar um, parasites. So my my cow herd's a little bit too small to have a huge impact yet. Um, I never have to think about deworming the cows, though, which is nice. But I would say like for people that have probably the majority of individuals have cattle or the majority majority of cattle, adding a few sheep I think is a fantastic idea as long as you understand the predation issue. That's the number one issue in just about anywhere in the world. There's only a few places where that's not an issue. And um, you know, if, if you have mostly cows and you add a few sheep, you're probably not gonna have a parasite problem if you rotate and you don't graze too close. And um and it, it's an excellent diversification. They eat things that cows don't eat, they eat way more weeds. And they work really well in a silvopasture pasture environment if you've got a lot of um you know forested areas that you want to turn into uh, part partial pasture or clear-cut grazing or things like that. they do really well. They eat a lot of leaves. and um yeah, so they're they're versatile. They're an excellent, excellent tool, an excellent uh, piece of equipment. And that's how I look at all my animals. It's just a a different tractor, a different piece of equipment. And they all do something different unique. I didn't really touch on it either, but, you know, you guys have used uh, pigs. We did one year of pasture forested pigs in a kind of a semi-pastured forest. And, um, man, you you probably wouldn't even have to start up a chainsaw if you had enough pigs and you used them, rotated them regularly enough in the forest. Because they, they grind stumps, they girdle trees, they dig up roots. They're incredible. Um, we're hoping to diversify into that at some point and actually use pigs and cows and sheep in a specific series um to not just improve but actually create from scratch um semi-pastured forests. And I think the potential is really huge there just to use use your livestock as as your as your equipment, as your tools, because that's what they are. They're value adding value adding the forage, the solar energy. The nutrients in the soil that's what we're after so yeah that's that's what i'm going going for right now anyway
1: awesome and thank you so
2: much for having me
1: well thank you everybody if you have oh steve has a comment
0: sorry one more comment i forgot so
1: if anybody out
0: there is saying you know you can't do that here Right. I just want you to think about Joseph and his environment. He's got a pretty tough environment and he's making an advanced grazing system work there. So, very impressed, Joseph. Thank you very much for your, all your uh, wisdom and knowledge. Uh, appreciate everything you've done. Thanks. Thank you.
1: Great. So, for everybody that's on the call or listening to the podcast, if you have not yet subscribed to Greener Pastures Ranching on Facebook or Gateway Research Organization, we have a YouTube channel, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, we have Twitter we're all over the place. Um, Please do so. We want to hear from you. And outside of that, thank you again, Joseph, for coming tonight. And after networking, networking is about to begin. So this is where we turn off the recording. And it's a free for all at this point. So go for it, guys.